Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Now, uh, a while back, and this goes back a little ways, uh, when I was pastoring a church in Winnipeg, I had the opportunity to speak for a few unguarded moments with the dean of a very large seminary in the United States, where many, many students from all over the world gathered for pastoral training before going into ministry, most of them to become pastors. As a church at that time, we weren't necessarily looking to fill a position at that moment, but I I thought it wise to kind of ask him a question with an eye to the future. Are there any Manitobans? Are there even any Canadians that are about to graduate? Figuring, of course, they would be coming home. I was glad to hear that there were a number, including, I think at that point in time, three Manitobans there. But he knew, of course, why I was asking. And before I could explore it any further, he preempted my next question with, well, of course, they won't be coming back to Manitoba. I was a little surprised. I was taken aback. And just how matter-of-fact his statement was, like, Well, anyone would know they won't be coming back to Manitoba. It was like, you know, I can't believe you were even thinking that. So, of course, I had to say, well, what do you mean? And his response not only shocked me, it has stuck with me, and more than that, it introduces what I want to talk about with you this morning. The dean cocked his head slightly sideways. He looked back at me like I was a few clouds short of a full sky, and incredibly and incredulously answered to me, well, you don't think they would choose to come back to Manitoba, would you? No, 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 he went on. This is what happens. We have a big board in the main building at the campus upon which we post all the various openings for pastor positions all across the world and particularly North America. A graduate comes to that board and sees it as a huge smorgasbord of of opportunity that God has created for them to make their own choice of. He looked at me in the eye in that moment and he said, so put yourself in their position." You're standing there and you see pastor listings for Florida and California and Hawaii and pay in U.S. dollars. They don't have eyes to see that little listing over on the side from Manitoba. You can't seriously be expecting them to choose Manitoba, can you, when their eyes are filled with the visions of beaches and surfing and luau's and money? He was already walking away when I said something about, uh, but what if God wants them to come here? I confess that I found it very disheartening as much from his acceptance of this attitude as with the outlook of the graduates themselves. Among those graduating from a seminary, my expectation, my anticipation was that at the top of their list, as they looked to the future where God would take them, they would seek God's guidance first. And then I realized that a different focus had been adopted and assumed, and that was this. I'm about to graduate, and now I see this board before me. I see all of the offerings that God has laid out before me, and I get to choose from all that is good. It's my choice. Thank you, God. I choose Hawaii. 
But what's really happening there is that there's a kind of blindness to what God would have for them. How did their focus get so off the desire to solve the world hunger problem or figure out ways to house the homeless or put an end to strife or devise a plan, a strategy to plant churches and bring people to Christ? Well, today we're going to look at an incident in which in Jesus' life when he encountered all kinds of blindness. And it begins with a man who was born physically blind. All of his life, he couldn't see. All of his life, he suffered from physical darkness. But we're going to look into this and see that there is really more to this story than what meets the eye. As we look at the story of this man's life, in the first few verses, Jesus heals his physical blindness. And you say, well, that's great. On to the next story. But not so fast. Jesus takes the rest of the chapter to do something even more important, to help the man to truly see for the first time. The story of this man is really the story of how God can help us see something we've never seen before. I mentioned to you last week that I've had my own vision problems lately. I had cataracts in my right eye. A cataract, if you don't know, is a gradual clouding of the lens in your eye, making it difficult to see clearly and untreated progresses to the point where you are visually impaired and eventually can even go blind in that eye. I could go into the details of how they replace your lens, but uh, I'm enough squeamish that I'm not going to do it. I had to suffer through it. All along, though, I thought the problem was my glasses. And I kept asking my eye doctor for a better set of glasses. But I found out that I was blind to the truth of the matter when he told me that there was nothing more he could do. The problem was the lens was getting clouded up and would not allow my eye to focus anymore. Here, when I had the privilege of speaking to you, and now we're going all the way back to the very beginning of this year, I concluded my talk by making the connection between the year 2020 and having 2020 vision. And I asked that we would have eyes this year, 2020, to see the good and holy things that might feed and shape our thoughts in new directions, eyes of understanding to see how best to spend the precious gift of time, eyes with clarity and focus, and how we could make our lives a gift to God in 2020. At that time, of course, none of us had any idea where 2020 would take us, but I truly don't think it makes a difference to the fundamental question, what have your eyes been focused on in 2020? What would you still love to be able to see God do in your life? Put yourself in the place of this blind man. All of his life, he's been unable to see. His life reduced to begging for his sustenance. There's no social safety net back then. He is completely dependent on the kindness of others simply to survive from day to day. And don't you think that every day of his life, at least once he must have thought, what would it be like if I could see? What would it be like to do whatever I wanted to do? How would my life be different? How would things change for me if only I could see? But I can't. What would you love to see? In a personal sense, in a spiritual sense, what would you love to see? 
things that you want, but you just can't see how they're possibly ever going to happen. Maybe it's, I'd love to see my marriage get better. I, I admit I can't see it right now, but I'd love to be able to see it. I'd love to see myself as a person of faith. Other people talk about it so easily. I just can't see it in my life. I love, I'd like to see my life used by God. I'd rather, rather love to see myself filled with joy. I'd love to see me reconciling with my family. I'd love to see my life return back to normal. What would you love to be able to see? If we were to turn the tables for just a second, how about looking at it from God's perspective? What is it that God would love me to be more able to see? This story is too long for us to read every verse, so if you will allow me to kind of narrate the gist of it, follow along with a few key verses as we go. The account begins as Jesus and his disciples are walking a street in Jerusalem, and Jesus sees a man who has been blind from birth. I love the way this starts. We have no record, you see, of this man trying to get Jesus' attention. This whole encounter begins because Jesus sees this man. Perhaps you're wondering this morning if Jesus sees you, notices you. Let me assure you that he does. He sees you just like he saw the blind man. He wants to really you to see some things too. If you look through all of Scripture, even just as a word study this week, look through the New Testament and, and particularly the four Gospels and look at what Jesus sees Look at even as he comes in at that triumphal entry into Jerusalem for that last week, that Passion Week. Look what Jesus sees. It will amaze you. You know, almost all the way through as he encounters people, there's this moment where Jesus sees them. We talk about God turning his face towards us or looking at us. It's all about seeing. God sees us. He turns towards us and sees us. See, though the prevailing thought of that day was that suffering occurred in people's lives because of some great sin they had committed or disobedient act they'd done. And uh, so somewhat innocently in this context, the disciples, noting Jesus' interest in this man, see this as a teaching moment and inquire of Jesus as to what and to whose sin had brought the blindness upon this man. Jesus also sees it as a teaching moment, but not in the same way the disciples thought. He explains that it's neither this man's sin nor his parents, but that God's power could be seen in him. He then gives a little clue as to what is about to unfold by telling them again that he is the light of the world compared to the darkness that blinds it. He then does an amazing thing. He spits on the ground, makes mud, and puts it on the blind man's eyes. Not only that, he then instructs this man to go through town to a pool of water in Jerusalem and wash. This he does, and the Bible records so matter-of-factly that he went and washed and came back seeing. What amazes me about this verse is what had to happen in the middle of it, between when Jesus said, go and wash, and the man coming back seeing. I can just imagine what he thought. Go and wash my eyes? I've done that a thousand times. He'd probably even washed in this pool before. 
I can just imagine what it must have been like for this blind man then to have to make his way blindly through the city streets against all the obstacles just to get to the pool. And yet Jesus sends him down to this pool to wash his eyes, and when he does, a miracle happens. Look at how the miracle started. Jesus said, I want you to do something very ordinary. I want you to walk through streets you've walked through before. Wash your eyes like you've washed them a thousand times before. See, that's where miracles always start. They always start when somebody does something very ordinary in obedience to God. God says, do this. It seems like an ordinary thing. You do it, and a miracle happens. God wanted to split the Red Sea, so he said to Moses, hold up a stick. Moses holds up the stick, and the sea splits in two. Pretty amazing, miraculous. God wanted to feed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread and a few fish, so what does he do? He multiplies one small lunch to feed them all. Something very ordinary becomes something miraculous. God wanted the walls of Jericho to fall down, so what does he do? He says, walk around the walls and blow a trumpet at it. Do you think it was the trumpets that made the walls fall down? No, it was God. But their ordinary step of obedience preceded God doing a miracle. Are you willing today to do something ordinary that says in a real way, I'm depending on God for this one? Not on me, but on God. An ordinary start for you today might be making a phone call. That's what you're feeling in your heart right now to do. You feel the prompting. I need to phone this person. I need to restore this relationship. I need to just see how they're doing. An ordinary start for you might be praying for something again for the first time in years. You've kind of just lost that train, but get back on it. It might be going to see a doctor or seeking prayer. It might be beginning to give, give even, give even when you don't have enough to give right now or you're not sure how it's going to still see your way to the end of the month. But if you take that first tentative step and give and then let God begin to do the miracle of helping you and giving back to you more than you can give, he's promised that will be what happens. I want to tell you the first thing you're going to think, if you haven't already. It's the first thing all of us think. It's most likely the first thing that this blind man thought. Jesus sends him on this journey down to get a healing at the pool, and I just guess the first thing he thought up was, like the rest of us, this is silly. This isn't going to work. It's just not going to work. But I don't have anything else to do today. What have I got to lose? I might as well go ahead and try it. So he walks down and he washes his eyes, and look at what God does. When you make that phone call, when you write that email, when you begin that prayer, when you give, don't be surprised if the first thought in your mind is, this isn't going to work. But it's amazing how God can take the smallest step of faith and obedience, even in doubtful people like you and I, and make incredible differences in our lives and others. And through our lives, we can take that first step towards trusting God. Two warnings, though, quickly about this. Just sort of a little sidetrack here. Don't confuse the method with the miracle. Don't think that the method that was used is why this miracle happened. We can even argue about that sometimes. 
In this case, Jesus spit on the ground, makes mud out of it, and puts the mud on the man's eyes. It's meant to be sort of ordinary. And then he says, go and wash it off, and you'll see. If this man had confused the method with the miracle, he could have thought, it was that dirt. i got to go back and find that dirt, that place where the dirt was. There's something amazing in the dirt. The dirt has the power. I've got to find the exact spot where Jesus did that. If I could just get my hands on some of that dirt, I'll be able to give healing to myself and so many others. If you'll read the Bible, you'll find that Jesus healed people in a lot of different ways. Secondly, don't confuse your participation with God's power. Yes, God invites Moses to hold up a stick, and yes, God invites the people of Israel to blow a trumpet at the walls of Jericho, and yes, God invites this man to walk down to a pool to be healed. But it was God who was doing the work. It was their step of obedience in listening to him that put them in line with what God was doing. They couldn't look at this and say, oh, look what I've done. I take the credit for this one. They knew that God had all the credit for what he'd done in their lives. Although God does help us and love us, he wants more for us than that. And that's the rest of the story with this blind man. Jesus doesn't leave after the blind man can see physically. He wants him to see spiritually. The man formerly known as the blind man, we never get his name, goes back to those who for all his life had watched him beg. He'd heard their voices, and for the first time he sees them. Can you imagine what that was like? You know how when you hear a voice on the radio, you hear somebody talking, and then for the first time you see them on TV or meet them in person, and you kind of go, I got to disconnect here. This wasn't what I was picturing. This man had that again and again and again and again. He saw all these people whose voices he heard all his life, but not once had ever seen their face. He saw in all of their faces, every one of them, as he looked at them, one thing, though, doubt. They pointed at him and said, you can't be the guy. You can't be the guy we passed on the side of the street every day. There's never been a guy who's been born blind and now can see. It can't be him. You can't be you. It looks like him, but we can't see it being him. Instead of everyone rejoicing that now he can see, he's having to argue them into the fact that he is the guy, that he can actually see this incredible miracle has happened in his life. I can almost picture them going, well, how many fingers am I holding? How many? You know, trying to see if he can really see. He has to argue them into the fact that he can see. And there's always people around you to tell you you should doubt. There's always people around to tell you, you may as well stay in the dark because the light is impossible. Reconciliation in your marriage? Impossible. Faith in God? Impossible. It'll never happen. God, who created everything, personally loves and cares for you? I doubt it. That's a fairy tale, they'll tell you. Forgiveness, freedom from guilt? Yeah. There's always people who find it easy to be negative. 
that there, this could never happen to you. Those things that the Bible promises aren't real, aren't true, won't happen to you. Don't let the past blind you to the possibilities. Don't let other people's voices blind you to what God can do. With God, all things are possible. The Jewish leaders also, of course, wouldn't believe that he had been blind. They couldn't see that this miracle had happened. They tried to write it off. We see this happen later again in Jesus' own life. They tried to write off that he was resurrected from the dead. They tried to write things off. They tried to write him off. In this case, they argued with the man formerly known as the blind man that it hadn't happened. Can you imagine? They brought him in two separate times and tried to get him to say, this wasn't from God. This wasn't a miracle at all. They even brought in the man's, formerly known as the blind man's parents, who testified that he had definitely been blind all his life. Can you imagine getting his parents even in? You know, seriously, are you sure he's been blind all this time? Can you imagine how ludicrous this whole scenario is? At one point in the interrogation, the once formal man, formerly known as the blind man, gave a great response. Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once. Weren't you listening? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Can you imagine? Oh, man, a sense of humor here. Can you just like, uh, no, that's not why we're asking. That, of course, did not go over well. And you know what happens? The leaders threaten to throw him out of the church, and eventually they do. They throw him out of the church because he said that Jesus had made him see. Now, we'll come back to the conclusion of this story in a moment, but I want us to look at what is at the heart of what Jesus is teaching through this story. What is beyond what first meets the eye? Jesus has healed this man of his physical blindness, but that's not the defining moment for this man yet at all. What really comes to light is the much greater need to heal his spiritual blindness. What Jesus is pointing out is that we all start out blind. We are all, to start with, in the dark. It's not that we're not smart. It's just that there's something wrong with our eyesight. It's not an intellect problem. It's a vision problem. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, oh boy, how deep that darkness is for you. Jesus is saying, my ways are right and true, worth treasuring. My counsel is sound and wise. But some people live contrary to it because they're spiritually blind. There's a segment of the human race currently living in a state of total spiritual blindness. Jesus said some people have eyes, but they cannot see with them. Reminds me of a story. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. After a good meal and time shared around the fire, they lay down for the night to go to sleep. Some hours later, Sherlock awakes and nudges his faithful friend, Watson, Watson, look up, look up and tell me what you see. Watson, ever the kind of man to analyze everything, he replies and he says, I see a million stars, millions and millions of stars. What does that tell you, says Holmes. Well, Watson ponders for a moment. Well, it tells me, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets out there. 
Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant before him. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow because it's clear. Why, Holmes? Why? What does it tell you? And Holmes says, Watson, you nincompoop. Someone has stolen our tent. Sometimes you see we are blind to what is going on right in front of us, right in our own midst. And in a spiritual sense, we can be blind to what God is doing all around us. Jesus said, some people have eyes, they cannot see with them. They can see physically, of course, but not spiritually. So what does it mean to be in the dark spiritually? It mean, what it means is that those who are spiritually blind can't see God for who he is in spite, of, in spite of his life and love given before us, in spite of the evidences pointing to the very existence of a spiritually blind person don't see him. They don't see God for who he is in nature. They don't see God for who he is in scripture. They don't see God for who he is in the miracle of life in a delivery room. They're blind. They're they're just blind. But they're not just blind with regard to being able to see God. They're blind with regard to seeing themselves as well for who they are. Moral foul-ups, sinners, disobedient people before a right and holy God. Interestingly, spiritually blind people have a remarkable ability to see the fallops of other people around them, particularly religious people, but they can't see their own sin and their own standing before a holy God. And as you might imagine, they can't see Jesus for who he really is either and what he did for them on the cross. Jesus, a good human. Yeah, I can go along with that. He's a good teacher. Oh, yeah, sure. God's Son, Savior of the world. Huh? One to whom we'll give an account of our lives. Uh, no. People who are spiritually blind can't see the Bible for what it is. It's an interesting book of antiquity, they say. Authoritative for your life? No. They can't see the day of reckoning coming. They can't see heaven and hell. They can't see the importance of the church in the scheme of things in history. But it's not because they lack intellect. It's about blindness. It's about spiritual blindness. And in case you think this is just a theological problem, implications, I assure you, it's even more serious. The reality of spiritual blindness is that it often leads to moral blindness. There's a connect. And in extreme cases, some people who are spiritually blind become accountable to no one and have respect for no one, and they become dangerous people. Like Jeffrey Farina. He shot three people, stabbed another in a fast food store. When asked why he did it, he said, because I had a boring day. While riding in a car, Henry James, 19 years old, randomly shot at a nearby car, killing a 36-year-old woman. When he was questioned about why he did it, he explained, I just felt like killing somebody today. He smiled at the cameras when he was arrested. He clapped when he was given his life sentence. Spiritual blindness is very serious not just for the individual facing eternity or lack thereof, but for our society as a whole. We pay in spades when large segments of our society cruise into spiritual blindness and stay there. 
Now, the Bible talks about another category that I think warrants a brief mention here with regard to spiritual eyesight. And I would call these people people who've chosen to take the dim view. These people aren't totally blind. They only have partial sight. They have spiritual cataracts, if you will. They're visually impaired. They've lost their focus. They might see God, but not accurately. By training or by imagination or whatever, their vision of God has become a dim one. They see him as a gate security guard or a psychic energy source or a cold-hearted judge with a big hammer, whatever. It's a distorted image of God. Someone who is visually impaired spiritually doesn't see his sin clearly either. He has the, ah, they're just like that. Boys will be boys. Oops, ah, that's not serious. Slogans down pat. Or she has the flip side, which is, well, <laughs> now that I've blown it, now that I've sinned, I might as well just keep on going. A spiritually impaired person sees Christ and his work on the cross, but he doesn't grasp its true significance. The events in the world that they see scare them. They can make out that they're in the Bible, but it's too blurry by. They have a dim view of the day of reckoning, but it's out of their focus. They're afraid, but they're not clueless. They're just not clear. They're not clear about God, about what's worth treasuring, about sin, about the Bible, about Jesus, about the church. Just blurry-eyed people who bump around and stumble, stumble around and make choices that shipwreck their lives and who inevitably ask at some point, how did I get here? How did I get lost? Simply put, visual impairment leads us to lose sight of God. And then we understand and underestimate what God can do. All through the Bible, there is account after account of people seeing with the eyes of fear. Moses sends the scouting party out to scope out the promised land. Most of the spies come back saying it's hopeless. We can never take the land from these people there. They are like giants and we are like grasshoppers. We will be squished like bugs. It's impossible. Have you noticed the longer you look at a problem, often the bigger it gets? That's an indicator, indicator that you're seeing with the eyes of fear. And then comes discouragement. The result of seeing your problem with eyes of fear is discouragement. You throw a pity party, and that's just sort of this natural consequence, you think. I'm not sufficient for this task. I might as well just wallow in it. Then comes discontent. We then start to play the complain and blame game. It has nothing to do with me. It's because of... And then comes despair and defeat. See, many people would just rather give up, rather live in slavery emotionally, or relationally, or spiritually than risk freedom. Rather live in blindness than be able to truly see. Risk seeing things through God's eyes. You see, our problems never defeat us. Our perspective does. Do we see it with the eyes of fear, or are we seeing it through the eyes of faith? Caleb and Joshua came back from the same scouting trip and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it with God. Perspective. Unfortunately for them, the fearful eyes win out. But it's interesting that 38 years later, when God finally did let them go into the promised land, Rahab, who had been waiting for them, said, you know, all these years, we've been frightened of you coming. We've been frightened of you coming for 40 years. We heard the miracles of Israel. 
We heard what God was doing with you. We've been living in panic for 40 years that you would come. And all this time, they were just as afraid of the Israelites as the Israelites were of them. When Caleb went in, he specifically asked for the area that the giants that they'd seen were in, the tall people. And when he got there, he found out they weren't even warriors. There was nothing to be afraid of in the first place. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. With God, all things are possible. The word impossible, I don't think, is in God's vocabulary at all. Caleb and Joshua are the only two in the whole nation that saw with the eyes of faith. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 to some vision-impaired people at Ephesus. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. He's saying, it's not that you're totally blind, but it's become blurry for you. I wish you had 20-20 vision. I pray for a visual connection, a correction to come your way. Literally, the eyes of your heart means the eyes of your understanding. He says, I want you to learn to see clearly with spiritual eyes. When you were born, you were given a set of five senses for the most part. Hearing, taste, touch, smell, sight. Everything you experience in life comes to you through those senses. When you were born physically, you got physical senses. When you're born again, when you're born spiritually, you get a set of spiritual senses, spiritual eyes, spiritual ears. Have you ever been reading a Bible verse, for instance, and you've, you've read it a hundred times, and all of a sudden it just pops out at you and you say, what do you say? I've never seen that before. See, God opened your spiritual eyes. Have you ever been listening to a sermon and all of a sudden it just hits you? I've never heard that before. God opened your spiritual ears. A number of years ago during the early space program, the first cosmonaut, he was the first person to get up in space, circled the earth. He came back down and he, you know what he said? He said, I was up in space. I got outside of earth. I looked for God everywhere. I searched the heavens and I didn't find God. I didn't see him. Therefore, he said, there is no God. The atheists around the world applauded and said, isn't that great? That proves there is no God. Three weeks later, John Glenn is sent up into space from the American side. He circles the earth three times, and he looked down and he quoted, and he said this, and he, this is a quote, I see God everywhere. I feel his presence. I see his glory. I felt him with me. I saw God everywhere. One says he didn't see him. The other says he saw him everywhere. Who was right? Well, in a sense, they both were. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. John Glenn was born again. Obviously, the cosmonaut was not. You've got to have spiritual eyes to see what God is doing in the world. And you only get those eyes when you tune in, when you start to follow after him. There's an unseen factor that we do not normally see. If we're going to get the property, we've, we've got to see it the way God sees us. If we're going to understand this, if we're going to sort of be able to see, we've got to be able to see the way God sees it. All through Scripture, there is incident after incident of people seeing with spiritual eyes. Genesis 21 is the story of Hagar taking, taken out to the desert with her son Ishmael. They're going there. They've got nothing. They're in the desert. They're going to die. She said, 
God, don't let me look upon the death of my son. In other words, spare me from this horror. Excuse me, this horror. The Bible says God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water in the middle of the desert and it met her needs. They were saved. In Luke 24, there's the example of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus is walking with them, but they can't see him. They don't recognize him until he opens their eyes and they see that God has been with them all along. In 2 Kings 6, there's the story of Elisha and his servant Gehazi. They're in a walled city, and an entire army has come to take them captive and kill them. An entire army has come just for these two guys to do them in. Gehazi becomes very frightened. When we see with the eyes of fear, we become frightened. It just follows. He said, we're dead. They're going to kill us. And Elijah says one of those great lines from Scripture to hang on to. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God opened his eyes that he may see. And God opened his eyes, and Gehazi sees angels in chariots of fire surrounding them. Can you, it gives me goosebumps to think about him looking up and seeing angels in chariots of fire surrounding them, protecting them, blinding the entire army, and they're saved. You lose your fear, you see, when you see clearly with spiritual eyes. Jesus said, if your eye is clear, your whole body is going to be full of light. Now, clear vision is not perfect vision. We won't have perfect vision this side of heaven. But he says, when you have clear vision, then you see life and eternity and God and spiritual things for what they really are. In other words, it's not what we cannot see or what we can, sorry, what we can see around us with a human eye that counts so much but our whole eternity hinges on the clarity of our spiritual eyesight. When you have spiritual eyesight, you see God for who he is. As the Bible paints the picture of God, holy but loving, merciful but just, patient but capable of wrath towards evil and wrongdoing, tender but able to discipline, transcendent but at the same time close and personal, all-powerful but at the same time gentle to the core. And Jesus is saying, if your eye is clear and you see God for who he is, you'll be drawn to him. You'll want to give your life to him. I was thinking back about this when I became a Christ follower in my 20s, when I saw the love of God for what it was for the very first time, and the light literally went on for me. I finally saw the love of God clearly, and it overwhelmed me. See, it's a matter of vision. It's not about intellect. An Old, time, Old Testament prophet named Isaiah got a vision of God one day, and he just simply said, I'm undone. I'm just undone. When we see God clearly, then immediately we see ourselves clearly, you see, and we see our need for a Savior. If Martin Luther or Handel or Leonardo da Vinci or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham were to appear right now beside me for the next 10 minutes, you'd move closer to your monitor. You'd get up a little closer to your TV. And applaud them as outstanding people. If God shows up for just a millisecond, you would, we all would instantly be filled with wonder and worship and awe followed by an unsolicited and uncomprehendingly urgent dive for the floor. We would just dive for the floor. 
where we would be involuntarily over and over repeating the phrase, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. Reminds me of the story about Zach, which I'm going to say. Zach's our worship leader here and my son. When he was very small, uh, his grandfather, uh, my wife's dad, came to visit us and as a treat, he took us to IMAX theater. And at IMAX theater, it was our first exposure to this huge, huge screen. And it was, I can't even remember what it was about. I mean, what the title was, but it was about speed or transportation or both. And there's one scene quite close to the beginning of the show, actually, where there are some Inuits walking across a frozen lake with snowshoes, and they're huge on the screen, and they're crunching in the snow, and the, and the camera's kind of on the ground looking at them as they come towards you. And uh, we're, we're sitting there watching this, and suddenly uh, uh, Jenny's dad says, where's Zach? And we look around. His seat's empty. We don't know, like, what happened? Suddenly, we look down. He's on the floor. He has he just dove for the floor as soon as these big people were coming across him. He never saw any other bit of that entire movie because he was on the floor, unsolicited, just, I'm afraid, I'm diving for the floor. <coughs> Excuse me. We having, would have that exact same reaction if God showed up, just gave us a sense of his glory in a huge way today. We're not worthy. We'd be on the floor. When you see God, you see, you see yourself for who you are. And you actually at that moment also see the distance between his holiness and our imperfection. And for a brief moment, there is this overwhelming feeling of despair because there's no way, you know it, there's no way we can make ourselves cross this gap. But then you see the cross and you see Jesus on the cross and you say, wait a minute, I get it, I get it. The cross bridges the gap. Jesus took the punishment for my sin so that I could be reconciled in the eyes of God before a holy God. You see Christ for who he is. You see it clearly. You see that he's no longer on the cross. You see that the tomb is empty. You just don't see it. You're seized by it. And then you see the Bible for what it is. You, you seize it as a roadmap for your life, a blueprint for the construction of your future, a navigational chart for this journey that you're on in uncharted waters called life. And you make a commitment of your schedule and your time to read it and to gather in when it's taught because you see your need for the truth. You see that you need regularly to be recalibrated and live according to truth. You see the day of reckoning and, and the afterlife, which is really the beginning of true life, frankly, as absolute realities. You know that you don't live 70 years in a moral economy governed by a holy God only to have your candle sort of snuffed out at the grave. Justice demands a day of reckoning, and you believe it. You anticipate it. You believe in the afterlife. You believe in heaven. And clear-sighted people see the church for what it is, too. They see it as a collection of people who have been reconciled to God through Christ. They see the church as God's redemptive community in the world, the hope of the world. And we at Southland are, on, are one of, really, God's eyesight clinics. With Jesus, the master surgeon, he gives sight to the blind and corrective lenses to the visually impaired. And so we arrive at the real defining moment for our friend, the man formerly known as the blind man. The stage has been set in the heat of the prosecution by the religious leaders about who Jesus is. He responds with this unforgettable line. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. 
There is, however, one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Then the Bible tells us that Jesus heard about what had happened to him and finds the man again and asks the pivotal question. In essence, the question that brings us all to our most defining moment in life, he asks, do you believe in the Son of God? And the man responds, well, who is he, sir? And and Jesus said, well, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. How will he respond? And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He saw the light. He could really see now. How about you? This is your defining moment. Do you want to see spiritually? The same question applies to you today. Immediately, Jesus says, I've come into the world to give sight to those who are spiritually blind. And a little later, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in darkness. The light comes in. The light comes on. And we understand that Jesus Christ is more than just a wonderful man. He's more than even a great godly messenger. God's promise of light for my life and yours. He didn't bring light to the world or share the light with the world or tell light to the world. Jesus is the light of the world and he offers that light to you today. He calls us to himself And we see that he is the one true God. We see he is the treasure we've been seeking. We see he deserves our all. He deserves our lives as living sacrifices. And just like this man, we respond, Lord, I believe. Lord, I love you. I was blind, but now I see. Let's sing. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 